The Tower of Babel The Promise to Abraham The Sons Ishmael and Isaac The Birth of Covenants Every one of these events is an announcement, a declaration of who God is and how He treats His people as the Word of God has stood the test of time, these records are still a revelation. Well, God's Word is a revelation, and this sermon is going to be another revelation of God's heart and the way He does patterns of things. We have been in the book of Genesis, uh, working through so many things that, that teach us about God. So I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles there uh, to the book of Genesis. And uh, so if you do not have one, our ushers are coming up the aisle at this point. Uh, we also utilize the YouVersion Bible app that you can uh, go in there and see all the scriptures we'll be using today. With that being said, over the last few weeks as we've been studying the book of Genesis, it's giving us understanding and, and piece by piece about uh, how we can begin to see how God operates in regards to mankind. We have seen and uh, some situations where you're just like, it makes our heads uh, just like we want to scratch our heads because we don't understand. We don't always figure out how God operates. But some key questions do come up. And we've looked at these key questions over the last couple of weeks. And so the questions we've asked in the last couple of weeks are this. If God is an unchanging God, and his plans do not change, and they are firmly established, then why even pray? Again, if God is an unchanging God and, and his plans are firmly established, why even pray? That was two weeks ago, and again, it, I would encourage you to go back, and, and if you've not heard that message, to go back and listen to it online, because those are some very important questions to ask. Secondly, last week we looked at, does, why does God test us? Why are there trials and hardships that, that good people experience? You know, it seems like often the evil get away with living life, you know, so easy, but often people that are following after God are going through some extremely difficult trials and hardships. Why does that happen? Again, I would encourage you to go and listen as we work through that biblically last week. And today going to look at a text that maybe on the surface may seem to be not such a big deal, but when you know how the rest of scripture points back to this text, you realize very big deal because it makes you ask the question, do we even have a say as to how our life goes? Do we even have a say? So if I haven't uh, Perk your, your eyes and your ears up a little bit right now. Let's just go and go into the text and we'll see where it takes us, all right? So we're gonna be in Genesis 25 and then we're gonna eventually go to Romans 9. So uh, if you wanna turn there after we read this, that's fine. So again, Genesis 25, starting in verse 19. It says this. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, uh, the Aramean from Padan Aram, and the sister of Laban, the Aramean. 
Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first, came, the first to come out was red and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some of, what, uh, some of that red stew. I am famished. That is why he was called Edom, which, by the way, means red. So Jacob replied, First sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate, drank, and then he got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. So let's first of all kind of capture a little bit of context. Now we just dedicated children here today and that's a celebration of life and, and we're anxious to see how those children uh, grow up and how their faith journey looks like and, and their names mean something to us. And so, you know, there's usually a story behind each of the names we give our kids. Sometimes it's because we love the character uh, behind that story. Uh, sometimes it's a family name. Or sometimes it's just, I like the name. I like how it sounds. And so, but there's a story nonetheless. Well, when these two boys were born, they were given names that pretty much forecast their future. Jacob. He was the one that came second, the younger of the two. And, and it says that he was grasping at the heel. So as Esau got to come out of the womb first, he was holding on, making sure he doesn't get left behind. Now the name Jacob means grasping the heel or follower. But as time went on and because of Jacob's uh, life, an idiom, a Hebrew idiom, uh, refers to Jacob as the one who deceives or he deceives or he is a deceptor. And so that while that's not what the name means, it became kind of a, a tagline for whenever you, somebody is a deceiver, sometimes they would ascribe the word Jacob towards them. But Jacob becomes a man who likes to cook, is among the tents. Now, he was a good thinker. We can tell he's a pretty intelligent uh, man. He was, he was willing to go after things he desired. He was willing to wrestle with God uh, for what he desires. And that story comes later in Genesis. And he was 
an opportunist. When there was something he wanted and he saw a moment that he could seize it, he went after it. And so again, follower, yes, he came second, but he saw opportunities to take the lead. And that's Jacob. Now I will say, as Jacob goes on, he becomes a much more godly man. And he becomes humble as time goes on. But that's not how he begins. Esau, he comes out of the womb and there, you kind of get the sense that when he came out, everybody was like, <gasps> because it says that he was hairy all over his body. And, uh, and then he was also red colored in skin. Now, as you heard some of the names in the service, naming of children, some of those were biblical names. In first service, we had several biblical names. But in all my years of dedicating children, not a single one named Esau. I mean, it, the name comes because when he came out of the room, look at all that hair. And the term Esau, or the name Esau, means hairy. And so it's not exactly, you know, an affirming term or affirming name to have. And then later, you know, when this red stew gets eaten, you know, to go with his red skin and, and then the soup he eats that is red, he became known as Edom, which means he, you, if you know anything about biblical history, he becomes the father of the, of the clan or people group or nation known as the Edomites, who later become a thorn in the side to Israel, which eventually becomes Jacob's name. But right now his name is Jacob and we have Esau. And so Esau was a man of the country. Uh, he was a skilled hunter, but he was also impulsive. He operated very impulsively, not very forward thinking, did not consider ramifications of his actions, which is why you see here he was so quick just because he was hungry to give up his birthright, to pass forward the opportunity to call the shots on the inheritance. Now, in just a glossing over this text seems to be no big deal. What do we even learn about God in this? I mean, is there anything to discern that affects today? Well, let me go back and highlight verse 23. There are two nations in your womb, two peoples from within you who will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Now, again, at face value, you might just receive that as well. God's just telling them what's going to happen. Well, what if I was to tell you that it's not only telling what, God, what was going to happen, but God is saying, this is what I've chosen. This is what I've chosen. And, and we're going to see that cemented in other texts, but let me work with that. If indeed this was a choice of God, not just a forecast of God saying what was going to happen, then you have to look and say, well, why would God choose against tradition? Because firstborn usually got to call the shots on the inheritance. But God is saying, no, I am choosing the younger. So this is a God choosing against uh, tradition. And then on top of that, for him to say, okay, so the older beginning to serve the younger is part of God's plan and choice. And that the younger will end up becoming the stronger of the two you have to ask yourself, what did Esau do to make this happen? 
What did Jacob do to deserve this credit and blessing? Well, already in what we've read today, we can already ascertain that both men, Jacob and Esau, were sinners. Nothing new here, right? We're all sinners. We all make mistakes. But Jacob in this story is quite an opportunist and, and, and he took advantage of his brother. And his brother was pretty foolish. And so you could see they were not perfect young men at this point. Not at all. But yet, it's saying that, that there is somehow God's chosenness. And so this perfect plan is being established here under two very imperfect people, both Jacob and Esau. So now let me go back and let's cement that this idea that God has made a choice here. So let's go to Romans chapter 9. And we're going to start in verse 6 of Romans chapter 9. And it says this, It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. So in other words, identifying, yes, there was another child in Ishmael, but it's going to be through Isaac. Those are going to be the offspring of Abraham that God blesses. So verse 8, in other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. In other words, the one that God chose to give the promise through, Isaac. Verse 9, for this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children, the story we just read, were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet, before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Okay, so that is a direct quote from Malachi chapter 1. God speaking, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Let me pause with that reality. Consider the ramifications of what has just been read here. God saying, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Before they were ever born, before they had done anything right or wrong, before any merits could be achieved, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Then goes on here. What shall we say then? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Now I think you might begin to understand why I titled this sermon, God Help Us. 
if before any of us were born, before any of us had done anything evil or good, God was already making decisions according to our lives. In fact, decisions were made. They weren't progressively made. They were made. That can be a bit unsettling for us to think that Jacob and Esau, while still in the womb, there was already a decision made over their lives. No merits, no mistakes, just simple choice and selection by God. We know from what we read a couple weeks ago that Psalm 33, 11 says that the plans of the Lord are firmly established. So clearly this was part of God's plan that Jacob was going to be the one that would become the son of promise and Esau was going to be the one that was rejected. Fair or not, that was already a part of the plan, always established, never a beginning to that plan. It was always known by God that this was his plan. But this idea that it says in verses 11 and 12, yet before they were born and had done anything right or wrong, in order, the purpose of this decision, in order that, that this decision was made before they'd done good or bad, it's about God's purposes standing. That's why he made this decision. And then it says, so that it can be proven that not by works do we have any kind of favor with God, but by his decision, by him who calls. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. He will have compassion on whom he will have compassion. So not by works, verse 12, so how it begins, not by works, but by him who calls. Does that sound familiar to some other passage in scripture when talking about salvation? Think about Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine. It says, for it is by grace. Grace being something given to you that you haven't earned, but it's a gift given to you for your benefit. So for by grace, a gift given to you, you have been saved through faith. But that faith is not from yourselves. It is a gift from God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. That verse says that, you know, any favor that we have from God comes from God. Not by our merits, not by our choices, but rather by God's grace. And then the desire and the faith to come to faith is even a gift from God itself. It's a work of grace in you. This choice is according to his plan. I mean, it says, so that his purposes can prevail. His plan can prevail. He chose Jacob over Esau. He chose you. If you, by faith, have come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, he chose you over other. That's a difficult truth to wrestle with. But it's, again, according to his plan, which we, we know from, from other scriptures, his plans will prevail. And then you might ask, well, why that plan? Why would that be his choice? And we're told there are two things as to why God's plan is what his plan is. 
First of all, go to Ephesians chapter 1, 9 to 11. It'll be on the screen and it says this. He made known to us this mystery of his will. Again, according to his good pleasure, which was purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring then to unity all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. So the only thing we're given to explain why God chooses what he chooses is two words, his purpose and his pleasure. And he doesn't qualify either. His purpose and his pleasure is why he makes the choices that he does. Okay, now I'm going to identify something that is going on in the room, likely in many of our hearts. I have been studying these things since I was a young adult male, studying to go into ministry and realizing that these questions regarding such texts can blow the mind and it's hard to understand. In fact, out of the Christian church, the Protestant Christian church, it is divided nearly in half over answering the questions that these texts raise. You know them as the Armenian movement or the free will movement or the reform movement where God's sovereignty rules over everything and makes every decision. And so you have those two realities at play and it's divided the church and therefore all the churches you might have passed to come here today tell you which side of this question they're on. It's just true. And somehow I have to resolve it for you in about 35 to 40 minutes of time. It ain't going to happen, but I think I can get us in a good direction. We do not know why his purposes and his pleasures conform and to this way, the way his plans then work out. We don't understand this. But to, to understand that everything that's on this earth will eventually orchestrate perfectly into all the plans that God has established. Nothing will thwart his plans. And therefore, his choosing of whom he gives mercy and to whom he gives compassion is also a part of his plan to fulfill his purpose and his pleasure, which then leads to the very human statement, that's not fair. If you didn't think it already, you probably in this moment are like, yeah, that does not feel fair. That Jacob and Esau, we, we know how everything goes later in their life. And so you can just say, okay, Esau was a pretty foolish man. And, and Jacob ends up being a good guy eventually. No, it says this was chosen before they had done anything right or wrong. Before any merits. That doesn't feel fair. But I would also say that God has chosen you and you didn't will for him either. God has chosen you to work in you and to bring things about inside of you. And that doesn't feel fair if others don't get to experience that like you did. The man Job, an entire book written about his life in the Old Testament. In chapter 39, 
begins to question God and that it seems as though everything that's happened to Job seems very unfair. It's not fair. It does not look fair when you look at what's happened in Job's life. And Job begins to question God now. Chapter 40 is God's response to Job's questioning. And in verse 2 of chapter 40 and verse 8 of chapter 40, God responds to the questioning from Job with three questions back. The first question is this. Job screams, God, this isn't fair. And here's why it's not fair. God's question back to him. Will you, the one who contends with the Almighty, correct him? Would you have the gall, Job, to correct the Almighty as if he had made a mistake? Or that his ways somehow weren't up to snuff? That he could have done better? Who are you, Job, to correct the Almighty? Second question God asks him, would you discredit my justice? He elaborated in chapter 39, Job did, as to why all the reasons why God should have done differently. And God simply responds, are you trying to discredit my justice? To suggest that you're more just than I am? That you would have the ability to make a better decision when you only have this much knowledge and I have infinite knowledge? Your character is flawed and mine is not and you think somehow your flawed character has a better sense of justice than my own? So you contend with me to correct me and you try to discredit my justice And then here's where God throws the gauntlet down into motive in Job. With the third question, he goes to Job. He says, would you condemn me to justify yourself? So Job is making all these statements because he wants to prove he is just. But it comes at the cost of screaming injustice towards God. Dangerous territory to say the least. Paul feels that in Romans 9. He has just written words that he knows is gonna cause the human mind to say, that's not fair. In verse 18, he says this in Romans 9, therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? Fair question, right? If God's the one that extends mercy and he hardens some who he wants to harden, then why why blame us, right? Why does he blame us? For who is able to resist the will of God? Paul pushes back on that thought and says, but who are you, a human being, to talk back To God. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? 
Paul understands that when he's just spoken to that God has orchestrated a plan and everything that's happened on this earth is not a surprise to him. He's always known it. And he knows how things are going to happen. That the natural response to this is if that's true, then how are we even guilty? Because is God making us sin? When we sinned, was that God's choice? And I'm, I'm asking that rhetorically. <laughs> if you know anything about God, sin is an affront to his holiness. A holy God would never choose for you to sin. What we do see is that God, knowing that he created us with this will to sin, but it's also a will to worship and to willfully come into relationship, that God creates this scenario that we do not understand, that somehow within the context of life, free will and the ultimate powerful sovereignty of God are both true. And that is a mystery I cannot explain fully. I can't. It's difficult. I can't do it. Because I'm stuck with a sequential understanding. If this happens, then this happens. And for God, there is no if then. It always has been. And he knows and always has known the character of us, the decisions of us, and the paths that we will go. But it's also true that God delights in the will of man wanting him and to worship him from out of a heart that is pure and true. So both things are true. But how they come together is a mystery. So what do we know and not know about God's sovereignty and his sovereign plan? Well, the first thing is, is we know that God's plan will happen and that it is good. So let's just say that right up front. God's established it. The plan has already been written. It's going to happen. And the result of that plan will be good. And everything that led up to that, both good and evil, will conclude with a good ending. And that is that God will show that he is supreme, he is sovereign, he is holy. And the evil one will be punished with all those who followed after the evil one for all of eternity. Justice will happen. So we know that God is good and that his plans will happen. The second thing is we do not know how this will of man and the sovereign plans of God interact or merge together. We know the sovereignty is over it. We know the free will of man is there. But we don't understand how God interacts with it. We know that in God's allowance, where he will allow us to experience sin, because then it reveals our need for him, that we need his help, because as he allows that sin to happen and come to fruition by our own wills, then we can see we are in need of a savior. We can't do it ourselves. That is just true. But we do not know how that all works together. Because for us, we're going from point A to point B to point C to point D and on. For him, it's always. 
We're going to end the series in Genesis just before Easter in a passage in Genesis chapter 50 where it talks about that there was evil that was, a, that was being done, but that evil did not thwart God's plan. It actually played into his plan and it then brought people to a place where God could show his glory. But we'll speak to that then. So the third thing, when I'm talking about what do we know and not know, what we do know is that God's purposes and pleasure, the reasons for his plan is best understood through the cross. I can't point to anything else that will be, give better clarity than the cross itself because that is the pinnacle of God's plan. We see all of the sin that had been, create, been accomplished prior to that. And we see that death was the penalty of that sin. And that God knew that there was nothing that man could do to cause that sin to go away or to be fully paid for. So what did God do? He did the ultimate sacrifice by sending his son Jesus to pay for that sin. Taking on the death penalty himself. His purpose and his pleasure the reasons for his plans. You have to look at the cross and realize what God is doing. We have to trust it. It is good and it will accomplish more than we could ever imagine. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, this mystery of how this all works is actually captured very well in a single verse when it says, this man Jesus was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. What is going on there is Peter, after the Holy Spirit come at Pentecost on Acts chapter 2, he is now speaking to a group of people that were in Jerusalem, bewildered by what they're seeing from the Spirit coming upon them. And they are trying to understand what has happened. And Peter says that Jesus, the Jesus you know about, that you crucified a few weeks ago, along with wicked men, just so you know, that was God's deliberate plan. Evil put him on that cross. Sin put him on that cross. But he was on that cross willfully because of the plan of God. God was good. And his character was unchanging. And he had a plan. And he foresaw from the beginning that they were going to redeem that which was broken. And could not be fixed by man alone. God took care of it. So both Jew and Gentile were the ones that by evil motives took him to the cross, scourged him, and gave him a horrific, embarrassing, and humiliating death. But that was according to God's plan. So if you want to talk about what that's not fair, God's the one that could say, this was not fair that you pushed me to this place that I had to do the most extreme thing to save all of you. If it's about fairness, none of us would have hope. None of us. But because God is good, he is going to accomplish his purposes according to his pleasure. Because his pleasure says, I want you. I want you. I wish that none would perish. I want you. And I paid the biggest price possible to have you. So I conclude this sermon with a more street language statement saying, how can we then come to grips <laughs> with God's sovereignty? Because it's a bit unsettling, isn't it? 
to realize that there is a sovereign God that's in control of everything. And we see all this evil and suffering going on in the world. And yet there's this good God, this all-powerful God. And we have to reconcile these things together. And we have to come to grips with it. And so there are four things I'd like to suggest in coming to grips with God's sovereignty. And the first one is this. There is hope when your leader knows all things coming. Put me on the team where the coach knows the playbook of the team you're going against. And that they have an earpiece where they know exactly what play is being played at what time. That you can set up the defense exactly as you need to to accomplish it. That's what we actually have by being in the family of God. God knows the enemy's playbook. He knows everything that's going to happen from past, present, and into the future. And therefore, we can have hope that our leader, our God, knows all things coming. Secondly, we can have peace. Hope is great. Adding peace to it's even better. When there is peace knowing that there is a God who is absolute in control in the outcomes. The one who authors how everything will end is God himself, the good God, the all-powerful God. And that gives me peace in my soul when I feel restless about all the evil and suffering I see in the world today. Thirdly, not only is it hope and peace we can have because of the sovereignty of God, but there's trust. When you look back in Genesis and you see how God operates, you keep seeing when, when they're up against the, the wall and things seem to be so murky and there's no hope, God keeps showing up that there was a plan that he had all the while. We get this now in hindsight. Therefore, we should take it as he is trustworthy. He is trustworthy even when we're in the midst of a storm when we have no understanding. And lastly, and I love this, there is confidence. There is confidence. So we have hope, we can have peace, we can have trust because of the sovereignty of God, but there is confidence because of that sovereignty because you know who wins. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he told his disciples, take heart, take heart because I have overcome the world. They were beginning to be fearful because they sensed that something horrific was about to happen. And he knew the next day was going to be traumatic. And he tells them, don't worry, take heart. I have overcome the world. And then John writes later, after, after the church had been birthed and been going on, John writes to his listeners before he passes on to death. He says, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory. So the church, the true church, those who have faith in Jesus Christ, they are born of God and therefore they become overcomers. That is our victory. So I bring it back to you, I recognize that many of you might be in the midst of one of those trials or hardships, or maybe you're going through a faith dilemma where you're struggling to understand God and you're struggling with doubt. You're struggling, therefore, with faith. To be able to say, I trust God and his character and goodness. I want you to know that God has mercy towards those who are doubting says that in the book of Jude. And that God is on a journey with you 
to bring your heart back towards him. And that if you can get to that place where you just let go of trusting your limited perception and you open up to the God who has control of everything, that knows everything, and his character and his justice are completely intact and good, then even when you're in the midst of something horrific and difficult, you can trust that God has control. Let's pray. Lord, I recognize that sometimes we feel life, life is dealt to something so difficult that we're barely able to keep above the water or feel like we're drowning. And Lord, I know, I know from my own personal experiences in those moments and, and I see it in your word that you become that hope, that anchor that we so desperately need and that you are looking ahead with full knowledge of what's coming and you will sustain us, you will deliver us and there is hope because of the ultimate victory is in your hands. So God, I pray that you'll do a work in the hearts of us here that maybe we feel like it's not fair. Would you bring them to a place of trust and maybe that's why they're in the storm is you're helping them to come to the place of not leaning on their own understanding, but trusting you. So God, do your work now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please? Oh
Chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 say this. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your faith, your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. You see, God is in the business of helping us where we cannot help ourselves. And if it wasn't for his sovereignty and his power and his ability to make a plan that is perfect, you and I would not have hope. But because of his will and his purposes, we have hope, we have peace, we have trust, and we have confidence. This text says we need to live out our faith with fear and trembling, continually doing so every day. Let God be God and then let us walk in faith, trusting in his mercy that his mercy is working on our behalf. And I thank God he is in control. 
I trust many of you here in this room that I know, but not for everything. I trust you for some things, but I trust God for everything. And so do we all. So with that spirit in mind, let us walk out with the confidence that God is in control and that he is wanting to bring about something good in your life and through your life on behalf of other people. If you'd like to talk with someone about these things and pray, we have people in the encounter room that'd be glad to spend some time with you. Go in the confidence that God's in control today, tomorrow, and forever. Amen. You're dismissed.